Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, morning. It is uh, great to be together and great to have the chance to get into God's Word together. And uh, we are launching a new series today uh, that's going to take us through the book of 1 Corinthians over the next eight Sundays. And uh, I'm excited for us to do that. Um, But one of the things that I want to talk about as we begin our study of 1 Corinthians is maybe a picture that will help us to understand the book a little more and, and the heart behind it. And so in order to usher into that, I need to ask you a very important and a very personal question. And that question is this, if you have a child under the age of 10 that is living in your house, what is the current toy of choice? Um, now, some of you are, are like, that doesn't apply to us anymore, our kids are grown. If, if your kids are grown, think back to that season. Um, if you are someone that doesn't have children at this point, think about just the toys that you had growing up. At different stages of your life, you had toys of choice that were in your house. And in our house, we have a six-year-old, and the current toy of choice is Legos. Um, our son loves Legos. And, and Legos are an interesting little entity, aren't they? Um, because Legos are something that when they are apart, are colorful and they're diverse and they're different, but they are somewhat useless. Uh, we've got a big bin of Legos that, that reside under Josh's bed. And when they're in that bin, they're, they're, they're just not that much use. When they are disassembled, they're just something you could step on and hurt your foot. They're something that gets vacuumed up in your vacuum cleaner. When they are apart, they are nothing. But the interesting thing about Legos is with a designer who can put them together, they go from being different and colorful to something beautiful and useful. And and the key to Legos coming together into something beautiful and useful under a designer has to do with the Legos themselves and how the Legos are designed. On the tops of Legos are these little circular um, knobs, what would you call them? And on the bottom, there are openings so that the Legos themselves are actually designed to click together and to make beautiful things. Um, And that's what makes Legos so great. And and having a six-year-old in our house, I've become an expert on Legos over the last few years. Um, But, you know, when you think about the the concept of Legos and how they were designed and built to be together, uh, there are other things in the world that are designed and are built to be together. And one of those things is the church. All of the members of a church like Wildwood, just looking out over this room, we are many shapes and sizes, we are many different colors, and scattered about, we are not very useful. But we were not designed to be scattered about. We were designed to be built together in Christ that under his design and under his direction, we could be useful for his purposes in the world, and we might be something beautiful, his church, his bride. Um, And the book of 1 Corinthians is, is really a book that was written by the Apostle Paul to this church in Corinth, a place where he had planted a church, a very prominent city in ancient Greece, 
Paul had planted the church there. He had ministered there for 18 months. And five years after his departure, he writes them a letter. And the letter that he writes to them has a very simple message. You guys were built to be together. He didn't know it, but he was calling them to be a Lego church. And today, as we gather to look at this book, I think it's important for us to remember that, and I think it's something that was, is a, hopefully a helpful picture for us to remember, that God has gathered us together, not to be apart, but to come together to be something beautiful, to be his church. We are built to be together. And we're going to look at this over the next eight Sundays. And the first kind of movement we're going to look at in this series is in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians verses 10 to 16. And so if you've got a Bible, you might open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 16, as we talk about Lego Church, how we were built to be together. Now, in the very early verses of the book of 1 Corinthians, we find out that though the church was built to be together, though it was designed to have unity, some division had sprung up in their midst. And so Paul is writing this letter largely to call them back to unity, to togetherness. And as he does that in chapter 1, verses 10 to 16, we're going to see two things. The first thing we're going to see is this, that he calls them together in one mind, not one room. He calls them together in one mind, not one room. Now, we see this in verses 10 and 11. I'm going to take them out of order because they help us to understand really what was going on in Corinth. We see in, in verse 11 that the church in Corinth had become known for something. Verse 11 says this, it says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. The church in Corinth had become known for quarreling, for infighting, for divisions. Paul had gotten word of this somehow through Chloe's people. Well, who are Chloe's people? We don't know exactly, but there's kind of two plausible scenarios. One is that Chloe was a business owner who lived in the city of Corinth and had associates within her business that traveled to maybe Ephesus, where Paul was when he wrote this letter. And Chloe's people went from Corinth to Ephesus and shared with Paul what was happening in the church he helped plant five years ago. Either that's who Chloe was, or Chloe was someone who had a business, say, in the city of Ephesus, where Paul was when he wrote the letter, and Chloe had associates in Ephesus who carried their business practices to the city of Corinth, and while they were there, they interacted with the church, and they brought word back to Paul of what was happening there. I mean, this is how information traveled in the world of, of Paul. This is before blogs, this is before websites. This is before any of that stuff. In order for information to get from point A to point B, it had to be carried by a person. In this case, it was carried by some within Chloe's household. And Chloe's household brought word to Paul and said, hey, guess what? The church in Corinth, the church you helped plant, is known for quarreling. What a, what a wonderful thing for a church to be known by, right? Uh, if you're going to have like a calling card, you know, we're the church that quarrels. Um, I, I had a friend that, that uh, went to a church out in Tennessee and um, somebody actually started a blog uh, about their church that chronicled all the different ways in which that church was fighting with each other. What a great thing to do, right? Uh, if you've thought about starting that, don't do that at Wildwood, okay? Um, but this church in Corinth had become known for its quarreling. It had become 
known for its infighting. And, and Paul was, was upset by that. Why? Because the church was not designed to be scattered. The church was designed to be together. It was built to be together. Jesus prayed in John 17 that there would be unity among his people. Um, Paul was very concerned about there being unity in his church. And so he writes this letter to a church that is known for quarreling, and he calls them, he calls on them to knock it off. He calls on them to come back together. And we see that appeal in verse 10. Paul writes very clearly, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Just walking through the words that, that, that Paul uses there. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, we could say brothers and sisters, I appeal to you, all of you Christians in the city of Corinth, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's going to underline this, bold it three times. He's going to say, hey, I have no higher authority to appeal to than to Jesus, and it's in his name. I'm going to tell you to knock it off. Stop dividing among each other. Stop quarreling. Stop your infighting. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says that he wants them all to agree. Literally, in the original, we would say that he wants them all to be saying the same things. He wants there to be unity among his people. He says he wants them to be united. That word united is a a great word. Um, It's a word that is used elsewhere in the New Testament to talk about um, fishing nets being mended. It's the idea that something was created as a whole. It was created with a purpose to pull fish out of the water, but if there's a big hole in the side of it, the net can't do what it was created to do. And so somebody would take it and mend that net back to its original form and function so that it could catch fish like it was supposed to. Paul uses that same language of the church. He says, you guys need to be united. You need to be mended. You've blown a big hole in the side of your net so that you're not as useful in the plan of God as you should be, as you could be. You need to be together. Paul calls them to be united. He, he wants there to be no divisions among them. This is a word that was used of the political apparatus of their day. He doesn't want there to be parties. He doesn't want there to be factions among the church in Corinth. And he wants them to be of the same mind and of the same judgment. He wants them to, to think on the same big things together. He wants them to have actions that are consistent with one another and respecting one another in, in who they are in Christ. He's, he's calling them back to unity because they were built to be together. Now, what do we do with, with this call and this appeal? Now, when we read this many times through our 21st century lens, uh, we want to apply this depending on the context of church that we've experienced in our life. Uh, for some, maybe coming out of a Roman Catholic background, they read this verse in chapter 1 and verse 10, and they use it to say, those doggone reformers should have never broken off from the church. Luther and Calvin should have never left because they're supposed to stay right there. Roman Catholic might look at this verse that way. A a, a mainline Protestant, someone that comes from a a Methodist, a a Lutheran, whatever background, might, might look at this passage and say, see, this passage discourages those from breaking off and forming 
independent, non-denominational churches. We're not supposed to do that. See, it says right there in verse 10, those of us that, that come out of a background like Wildwood, a, a non-denominational type of church, we might look at that verse and say, see, you're never supposed to leave this church ever, ever. Um, you're never supposed to leave. Unless you move more than two area codes away, um, we don't want you to ever leave this place. Because we read this through our 21st century lens and we, we want to have this passage say that, that everybody is to be together in one room. And depending on our background, we let that background determine what the room is. Catholic, Protestant, Wildwood, whatever. But is that really what this passage is calling us to do? Is this passage actually calling us to always be in the same room? Now, certainly this would be a relevant text for us to study and to look at if we were going to have that conversation. Um, But I think this passage calls us to something higher and something even more important. It calls us not to just be in one room. It calls us to be in one mind. Now, what is harder? To be in one room or to be in one mind? Think about it. What's harder, to, what's harder to be in one room or to be in one mind? It's absolutely harder to be in one mind. Just think about all the examples of that. Um, all of the United States Congress sits in how many rooms? One room. Are they in one mind? No. I don't think so. Um, think about school boards. When we lived in Dallas, they used to broadcast uh, at night. It was kind of the, the nightly uh, fight on the news about the Dallas Independent School District school board. And they'd have these big knockdown, drag-out fights. Did that board meet in one room? Yes. Were they of one mind? No. Think of, think of churches. Is it easier for us to get in one room or to get on one mind? It's way easier to be in one room. And and Paul goes at this, and he doesn't encourage them to be in one room. He encourages them to be in one mind. And the reason why was the church in Corinth was already in a bunch of different rooms. Church in Corinth was planted. They met in the synagogue for a while, but they got kicked out. By the time Paul writes the letter five years later, they're meeting in house churches all over town. They're in a bunch of different rooms. But he writes them and calls them to something higher, to be of one mind. Now, again, is it harder to be in one room or one mind? It's harder to be in one mind. How hard? I think it's almost impossible to be in one mind. In human terms, I mean, think about it. How many people does it take to not be in one mind? How many, how many people do you have to get in a group in order to, to not be in one mind? I have just, it's a real question. I want to I hear somebody. Two, right? I've heard that from many people. First service, you guys are right on the money. It takes a minimum of two people to, to be in a room together and not be of one mind. Why? Well, because I'm right. And because you're right. And because we come at the world, we look at it from this perspective, it is very difficult for us to get in one mind. And yet Paul writes to the church in the city of Corinth and he calls them to be of one mind. Well, what possibility is there for that actually coming true? Well, the the answer is 
profound in the fact that he's writing this to the brothers and sisters. He's writing this to the church in Corinth. And they had something that made it possible for this very diverse group of people to be built together and to have one mind. And that thing that they had in common was the mind of Christ. Paul writes a letter to the church in Philippi. And in chapter 2 of the great letter to the Philippians, um, Paul says this. We'll pick it up on the screen on verse 5, but I'm going to start a little earlier. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We have a common mind. That mind is found in Christ. We can be of one mind because of what Christ has done for us. This mind of Christ, he says, verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, the hope that we have to be of one mind is found in the fact that we have a God who wants to unite us, who is designed us in Christ to be one, but, but the pattern that we have for that mind is not a mind that seeks our own interests, but a mind that seeks the interest of others. Not a mind that asserts our own authority, but a, but a mind that is willing to die to bring reconciliation among the people. See, Paul encourages them to be of one mind because in Christ they can have one mind, a mind that is singularly focused on the glory of God and what he's providing for us in Christ. So Paul appeals to them to to be together, not just in one room, but to be together in one mind. And this is a lofty thing. Now, now how does that play out for us? And where's the real rub with that for us? Well, we'll see that in the rest of the verses that's a setup, the, the, the appeal, the call to be of one mind. Well, the, the great enemy of that is that we want to divide. And we want to divide many times over personalities. And Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he says, I want you to be together in person, not personalities. And we see this in the verses that follow. See, that the church in Corinth had a problem with people, with personalities, and dividing up allegiances over feelings about these different personalities. Verse 12 says it very clearly. It says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. In other words, camps were forming in the church in Corinth based around personalities, Different ones. Some were saying that they were a part of the camp of Paul. Well, who was Paul? Paul was the the founding pastor of the church at Corinth. Many people had probably come to faith in Christ under his ministry and under his leadership. He was off from that place, going all over the world, telling others about Christ and writing about half of the New Testament. And there were people that were saying, hey, I came to Christ under Paul. Paul's my man, and because I am Paul's guy, because I was discipled by him, pounding their chest, I'm better than you. That was what was happening in the church in Corinth. Other people, though, were saying, no, 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 I'm not of Paul. They were saying, I am of Apollos. 
Now, who's Apollos? Well, Apollos had a, a stint of ministry in Corinth also. Apollos, we know from Acts chapter 18, was a fiery speaker. He was a great orator, probably a better speaker than Paul. And there were those who, under the leadership of Apollos, had begun to grow and and really liked the way he said things, and they liked his fire, and they liked his passion. And they were saying, no, 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 you you Paul people, you go over there and you, you read your Romans, but no, I'm an Apollos guy. And there were those that were pounding their chest, saying, I'm better than you because of the emotion that I'm following and the passion in following Apollos. There were still others who were saying, no, 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 not, not Paul, not Apollos, but Peter. I'm a Peter guy, Cephas. Now, we don't know if Peter ever did, a, uh, did some time in Corinth. Um, there's some indication that he did, but he didn't have to. Uh, there certainly would have been those from a Jewish background that lived in that area who would have found a lot of of kinship in Peter. I mean, he was the original. And there were those that probably would say, hey, you guys can follow your apostle that that had to wait all the way to the Damascus Road to get it right. I'm going to follow the guy that had it right from the beginning. You can be baptized from the guy that has to get into the water. I'm going to be baptized from the guy that walks on top of it. And and there there were people that would say, no, no, I'm with Peter. And they kind of pound their chest. I'm better than you because I'm with Peter. And still there were others that said that I'm with Christ. And and sometimes we look at that and we think, well, that's the group that had it right. But I think in context, that's another group that had it wrong. There were people that were saying, hey, all of the rest of you jokers have it wrong. We're going old school all the way back to the the Savior, and and we're going to do just, you know, WWJD. You can have the rest of your your Bible. I'm just going to have the red letters. That's all we've got. And they were using their, their proclamation of Christ as another reason to divide. There were these four camps that had, had grown up within the church. And, and the, the idea is not just their affinity to one over the other. There was nothing wrong with Paul, Apollos, Peter, um, and certainly not Jesus. The problem was, was not people even having an affinity to one of those. I mean, we've all got different people that we tend to connect with more or just whatever. Um, The idea was that they were using their connections to those people as a reason and a cause for division within the church. Their reason and cause to say that I'm better than you because I'm connected to him or because I do it this way. Now, is that a problem for us today? I think it is. Um, And I say this not because Wildwood is is a wonderful place. This is not like, hey, I'm going to preach on this because this is the number one problem at Wildwood. That's this not the case. But we're people here, and we're sinful people here. And there's times when we get wrapped up in some of the same kinds of thinking. I mean, who, who are our Pauls? Well, many times, somebody that played an early role in forming our relationship with Christ um, become the gold standard for us. And the fact that we were discipled by them, the fact that we were led to Christ by them, the fact that we used to be a member of their church becomes a source of spiritual pride that says, I'm better than you because I came from here. I was discipled by Todd Stuman. Take that. You know, that's, that's my own issues, right? Others, maybe it's, it's Apollos. Who are the Apollos of our day? Well, you know, the fiery orator, the great speaker. Um, you know, there's sometimes we make determinations based on how fiery someone is. 
You know, wow, they, they go to a church where they jump up and down and they put their hands in the air. They must love Jesus more than we do. And if we practice in that way, we have this kind of fire, then we think, boy, that, that makes us right and everybody else wrong. We're better than them because of that. How about Peter? That's the tradition. You know, if you struggle with this and this is your area of pride, it's like, no, no, we, we do hymns. God wrote good music in the 1800s and at no other time. And we're going to sing those, and that's the way that we worship. And we're better than you because we worship that way. We're going old school of Jesus. Sometimes we, this is, this is one of those things where we say, you know, you can, you can be your little church and you can do those things. I'm going to be the New Testament church. I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning. No, no other structures. We're going all the way back. We're going to connect straight, straight to Jesus. We're better than you because we don't have a denomination in our name. And one of the things we've got to be careful of in an environment like ours is, a, is a, the, the nomenclature Bible church. I love the Bible. I love the fact that, that we teach the Bible here. But you know, if, if we call ourselves a Bible church, sometimes we can use that as a way, hey, we've got the Bible and nobody else does. Hey, we're the only people in town that have this book. You realize that? Not true. If we're not careful, we can have pride that develops over our Paul, Apollos, Peter, and Jesus connection. And we can begin to want to rank ourselves in connection to others as a result of those things. And Paul writes and says, knock it off. Stop that way of thinking. Get of one mind. Die to your personal rights and agenda. Stop thinking that you're better than everybody else. And here's the line of of reasoning that he uses. It's not about the personalities. It's about the person. There is one person by which we are saved. It's not the personalities. It's not the way they said it. There is one person who died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, and that's Jesus Christ. And if we ever put anything else above him, as a means to divide us, then we've got it all wrong. And Paul very clearly articulates that in the verses that follow. Uh, first of all, just scan verses 1 to 10 of chapter 1 in 1 Corinthians. Whose name do you see over and over and over again in those verses? In a book about unity, whose name is mentioned over and over again in that section? Jesus Christ, over and over again. Why? Because the unity that we have, the togetherness we have is found in Christ and because of Christ. And he follows up that setup about talking about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. In verse 13, when he says, as as a rationale for why it's silly to divide over personalities, he says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Uh, The answer to those questions is all emphatically no. Jesus didn't come to die for just a little pocket congregation over here. Jesus came to die for humanity and gave the opportunity for people to embrace him in faith. How silly it would be to divide that up and say he only died for Wildwoodians or he only died for this church or for that church. We have unity because there is one who died. Christ is not divided. He says, was Paul crucified for you? How silly to draw our allegiance in a human because no human can provide for us what Christ can. 
He goes on, he says, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Our identity comes not from our connection to a human leader or a church or a denomination. Our identity comes from our connection to Christ. And because of that, we all have the same name on the front of our jersey. We're all connected to him if we have embraced the work of Christ on the cross. And because of that, we ought to have a togetherness of mind. Not that we're all uniform and not that we all say things exactly the same way. Not that every Lego is the same shape or size or color. But that we come together to make something beautiful. Understanding that we're all designed to fit together as a part of his body. Paul even went so far as to structure his ministry in such a way that it didn't emphasize him, but it emphasized Christ. Look at what he says in verses 14 to 16. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, and beyond that I do not know whether I baptized anybody else. This is, this is scripture, by the way. Isn't that funny? That's just a funny phrase in the middle of the Bible that Paul's like going, oh yeah, there was that guy, and I think maybe this other person that I baptized. What do we make of that? What do we make of it that in an inerrant word of God that there's this kind of word? This is what I think we take away from it. Paul didn't have a ledger in the front of his Bible where he was keeping score. Hey, guess what? I baptized six more today. Hey, guess what? I baptized seven more. You know what Paul was way more concerned about? People's connection to Christ, not their connection to And he went so far as to not baptize very many people intentionally as a matter of strategy so that people wouldn't find their identity in him. They'd find it in Christ. You know, this is something, um, you know, some people have looked at this passage and said, see, Paul didn't have a very high view of baptism. The, The answer is just the opposite. Paul had a very high view of baptism. He baptized people in every church that he went to. But Paul's idea of baptism was not baptized into himself, not baptized into a local church of of some particular uh, thought, but baptized into Christ. The the water of baptism helped people connect to Christ, not to him. He was very intentional about that. You know, if if you've been around Wildwood and you've seen baptisms that we've done in the past, um, part of the way we do baptism the way we do is because we've read 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, why is it that not you know people beyond just pastors can baptize somebody here? Well, because we've read 1 Corinthians 1. It's not about who does the baptizing. It's about people connecting to Christ. Why is it that we, in order to become a member of the church, we ask that you be baptized since trusting in Christ, but why do we not mandate or demand that you be baptized at our church to become a member? Well, because it's not about our church. Baptism is about people connecting to Christ. It's important, but the important connection is the one with Christ, not connection to us. And so, you know, we, I mentioned earlier, we've got baptism coming up in July, and, and this is a great opportunity to just challenge you. If you've trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you find your identity and your hope for eternity in him, but have not been baptized with water, we would love to have you come and be baptized here. But, but we want you to come and be baptized here, not so that I can say, hey, I baptized two more. And not so that we can say, hey, Wildwood is great. But because there's an opportunity to publicly display what as God has already done in your heart, that you are connected to Christ. 
which is the most fundamental, most important thing. See, we are together in person, not in personality. We're together in Christ. What he has done unites us. How silly it would be for us to spend our time trying to divide what Christ has united. For us to try to rank who's better than who when Christ has placed us equally at the foot of the cross and drawn us equally close in his presence if we're trusting him. See, many times we want to divide what God has intended to be together. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up, and uh, we're going to sing a song in in closing here in just a moment. Um, but as we get ready to do that, I, I just just want to read a kind of a parallel section of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 4 to 7, that, that talk a little more about this idea, but drive home the point even further. We get so caught up wanting to be connected to this group or to that group or to be a part of this church or that church or, or, or read this guy or that guy, and ultimately it's all about Christ. And, and this is what it says in verses, chapter 3, verses 4 to 7. It says, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but God who gives the growth. Why would we ever get so focused on people, personalities, that we miss the unity we have in the person of Christ? Uh, Barbara Boyd, I posted something on Facebook about this earlier this week. She had a great comment back. I just want to read it. It said, philosophies become irrelevant. Customs change over time. Cultures vary by location. Only a person can transcend these variables to connect with all people of all times and all places. And of course, that person is Christ. We have a chance to close our service today by singing about the unity we have in Christ alone. Please stand and join us as we sing. Mm-hmm.